Good work will sometimes not sell. People will buy but not pay promptly. The market may be rotten even when the work is great. I cannot control these factors. Being true to the inner artist often results in work that sells m dash but not always. I have to free myself from determining my value and the value of my work by my work's market value. The idea that money validates my credibility is very hard to shake. If money determines real art, then Yogan was a charlatan. As an artist, I may never have a home that looks like town and country m dash or I may. On the other hand, I may have a book of poems, a song, a piece of performance art, a film. I must learn that, as an artist my credibility lies with me, God, and my work. In other words, if I have a poem to write, I need to write that poem m-dash, whether it will sell or not. Art happens m-dash no humble is safe from it, no prince can depend on it, the vastest intelligence cannot bring it about. James Abbott McNeil Whistler I need to create what wants to be created. I cannot plan a career to unfold in a sensible direction dictated by cash flow and marketing strategies. Those things are fine, but too much attention to them can stifle the child within, who gets scared and angered when continually put off. Children, as we all know, do not deal well with later. Not now. Since my artist is a child, the natural child within, I must make some concessions to its sense of timing. Some concessions does not mean total irresponsibility. What it means is letting the artist have quality time, knowing that if I let it do what it wants to it will cooperate with me in doing what I need to do. Sometimes I will write badly, draw badly, paint badly, perform badly. I have a right to do that to get to the other side. Creativity is its own reward. As an artist, I must be very careful to surround myself with people who nurture my artist m-not people who try to overly domesticate it for my own good. Certain friendships will kick off my artistic imagination and others will deaden it. I may be a good cook, a rotten housekeeper, and a strong artist. I am messy, disorganized, except, as pertains to writing, a demon for creative detail, and not real interested in details like polished shoes and floors. To a large degree my life is my art, and when it gets dull, so does my work. As an artist, I may poke into what other people think of, as dead ends, a punk band that I mysteriously fall for, a piece of gospel music that plucks my inner ear, a piece of red silk I just like and add to a nice outfit, thereby ruining it. As an artist, I may frizz my hair or wear weird clothes. I may spend too much money on perfume in a pretty blue bottle, even though the perfume stinks, because the bottle lets me write about Paris in the 30s. As an artist, I write, whether I think it's any good or not. I shoot movies other people may hate. I sketch bad sketches to say, I was in this room. I was happy. It was me and I was meeting somebody I wanted to meet. As an artist, my self-respect comes from doing the work. One performance at a time, one gig at a time, one painting at a time. Two and a half years to make one 90-minute piece of film. Five drafts of one play. Two years working on a musical. Throughout it all, daily, I show up at the morning pages and I write about my ugly curtains, my rotten haircut, my delight in the way the light gets the trees on the morning run. The job of the artist is always to deepen the mystery. Francis Bacon. The function of the creative artist consists of making laws, not in following laws already made. Firuxio Busoni. As an artist, I do not need to be rich but I do need to be richly supported. 
I cannot allow my emotional and intellectual life to stagnate or the work will show it. My life will show it. My temperament will show it. If I don't create, I get crabby. As an artist, I can literally die from boredom. I kill myself when I fail to nurture my artist child because I am acting like somebody else's idea of an adult. The more I nurture my artist child, the more adult I am able to appear. Spoiling my artist means it will let me type a business letter. Ignoring my artist means a grinding depression. There is a connection between self-nurturing and self-respect. If I allow myself to be bullied and cowed by other people's urges for me to be more normal or more nice, I sell myself out. They may like me better, feel more comfortable with my more conventional appearance or behavior, but I will hate myself hating myself, I may lash out at myself and others. If I sabotage my artist, I can well expect an eating binge, a sex binge, a temper binge. Check the relationship between these behaviors for yourself. When we are not creating, artists are not always very normal or very nice and dash to ourselves or to others. Creativity is oxygen for our souls. Cutting off our creativity makes us savage. We react like we are being choked. There is a real rage that surfaces when we are interfered with on a level that involves picking lint off of us and fixing us up. When well-meaning parents and friends push marriage or 9 to 5 or anything on us that doesn't evolve in a way that allows for our art to continue, we will react as if we are fighting for our lives and dash we are. To be an artist is to recognize the particular. To appreciate the peculiar. To allow a sense of play in your relationship to accepted standards. To ask the question why? To be an artist is to risk admitting that much of what is money, property, and prestige strikes you as just a little silly. What moves men of genius, or rather what inspires their work is not new ideas, but their obsession with the idea that what has already been said is still not enough. Eugen Delacroix. To be an artist is to acknowledge the astonishing. It is to allow the wrong piece in a room, if we like it. It is to hang on to a weird coat that makes us happy. It is to not keep trying to be something that we aren't. If you are happier writing than not writing, painting than not painting, singing than not singing, acting than not acting, directing than not directing, for God's sake, and I mean that literally, let yourself do it. To kill your dreams, because they are irresponsible is to be irresponsible to yourself credibility lies with you and God and dash not with a vote of your friends and acquaintances. The Creator made us creative. Our creativity is our gift from God. Our use of it is our gift to God. Accepting this bargain is the beginning of true self-acceptance. Success. Creativity is a spiritual practice. It is not something that can be perfected, finished, and set aside. It is my experience that we reach plateaus of creative attainment only to have a certain restlessness set in. Yes, we are successful. Yes, we have made it, but... In other words, just, when we get there, there disappears. Dissatisfied with our accomplishments, however lofty, we are once again confronted with our creative self and its hungers. The questions we have just laid to rest now rear their heads again. What are we going to do, now? This unfinished quality, this restless appetite for further exploration, tests us. We are asked to expand in order that we not contract. Evading this commitment and evasion that tempts us all and leads straight to stagnation, discontent, spiritual discomfort. Can't I rest, we wonder. In a word, the answer is no. As artists, we are spiritual sharks. 
The ruthless truth is that, if we don't keep moving, we sink to the bottom and die. The choice is very simple, we can insist on resting on our laurels, or we can begin anew. The stringent requirement of a sustained creative life is the humility to start again, to begin anew. It is this willingness to once more be a beginner that distinguishes a creative career. A friend of mine, a master in his field, finds himself uncomfortably committed years in advance of his availability. He is in an enviable position on a business level, but he finds it increasingly perilous to his artistic health. When the wheel turns and the project committed to three years ago must be executed, can he do it with imagination and his initial enthusiasm? The honest answer is often an uncomfortable no, and so, at great financial cost, he has begun cutting back his future commitments, investing in the riskier but more rewarding gain of artistic integrity. No amount of skillful invention can replace the essential element of imagination. Edward Hopper. Not all of us, always, can muster such creative courage in the face of fiscal temptation, but we can try. We can at least be willing. As artists, we are travelers. Too heavily encumbered by our worldly dignity, too invested in our stations and positions, we are unable to yield to our spiritual leadings. We insist on a straight and narrow, when the artist's way is a spiral path. Invested in the outer trappings of a career, we can place that investment above our inner guidance. Deciding to play by the numbers, we lose our commitment to counting ourselves and our own goals worthy. Creativity is not a business, although it may generate much business. An artist cannot replicate a prior success indefinitely. Those who attempt to work too long with formula, even their own formula, eventually leach themselves of their creative truths. Embedded, as we often are in the business milieu of our art, it is tempting to guarantee what we cannot deliver, good work that duplicates the good work that has gone before. Successful movies generate a business demand for sequels. Successful books generate a demand for further, similar books. Painters pass through popular periods in their work and may be urged to linger there. For potters, composers, choreographers, the problem is the same. As artists, we are asked to repeat ourselves and expand on the market we have built. Sometimes this is possible for us. Other times it's not. As a successful artist, the trick is to not mortgage the future too heavily. If the house in the Hamptons costs two years of creative misery cranking out a promised project just for cash, that house is an expensive luxury. This is not to say that editors should stop planning seasons or that studios should scuttle their business bottom line. It is to say that the many creatives laboring in fiscal settings should remember to commit themselves not only to projects that smack of the sure thing but also to those riskier projects that call to their creative souls. You don't need to overturn a successful career in order to find creative fulfillment. It is necessary to overturn each day's schedule slightly to allow for those small adjustments in daily trajectory that, over the long haul, alter the course and the satisfactions of our careers. You are lost the instant you know what the result will be. One gris. This means writing your morning pages. Taking your artist date. But I run a studio, you say and dash or whatever other thing it is you must do. People depend on me. I say, all the more reason to depend on yourself and protect your own creativity. If we ignore our inner commitment, the cost rapidly becomes apparent in the outer world. A certain lackluster tone, a road inevitability, evicts creative excitement from our lives and, eventually, our finances. 
attempting to insure our finances by playing it safe, we lose our cutting edge. As the promised projects diverge further and further from our inner leanings, a certain deep artistic weariness sets in. We must summon our enthusiasm at gunpoint instead of reveling in each day's creative task. Artists can and do responsibly meet the demands of their business partnerships. What is more difficult and more critical is for us, as artists to continue to meet the inner demand of our own artistic growth. In short, as success comes to us, we must be vigilant. Any success postulated on a permanent artistic plateau dooms us, and it, to failure. The Zen of Sports Most blocked creatives are cerebral beings. We think of all the things we want to do but can't. Early in recovery, we next think of all the things we want to do but don't. In order to effect a real recovery, one that lasts, we need to move out of the head and into a body of work. To do this, we must first of all move into the body. Again, this is a matter that requires acceptance. Creativity requires action, and part of that action must be physical. It is one of the pitfalls of Westerners adopting Eastern meditation techniques to bliss out and render ourselves high but dysfunctional. We lose our grounding and, with it, our capacity to act in the world. In the pursuit of higher consciousness, we render ourselves unconscious in a new way. Exercise combats this spiritually induced dysfunction. No longer conscious of my movement, I discovered a new unity with nature. I had found a new source of power and beauty, a source I never dreamt existed. Roger Bannister on breaking the four-minute mile. Returning to the notion of ourselves, as spiritual radio sets, we need enough energy to raise a strong signal. This is where walking comes in. What we are after here is a moving meditation. This means one where the act of motion puts us into the now and helps us to stop spinning. 20 minutes a day is sufficient. The object is to stretch your mind more than your body, so there doesn't need to be an emphasis on fitness, although eventual fitness is a likely result. The goal is to connect to a world outside of us, to lose the obsessive self-focus of self-exploration and, simply, explore. One quickly notes that, when the mind is focused on other, the self often comes into a far more accurate focus. It is 6.30 a.m. when the great blue heron stirs from its resting place in the short grasses and rises above the river on huge rhythmic wings. The bird sees Jenny down below. Jenny, down below, sees the bird. The pumping of her legs carries her in an effortless floating stride. Her spirit soars up to the heron and chirps. Hello, good morning, lovely, isn't it? At this time, in this place, they are kindred spirits. Both are wild and free and happy in their motion, in the movement of the winds, the clouds, the trees. It is 4.30 p.m. when Jenny's boss looms in the doorway to her office. The new account is being picky and wants still more changes in her copy. Can she handle that? Yes, Jenny says. She can, because she is still soaring on the glad energy of her morning's run. That Karen, the steely blue of it flashing silver, as it made that great banking turn. Jenny would not call herself an athlete. She does not run in marathons. She does not run in cheery singles groups. Although her distances have gradually increased and her thighs have gradually decreased, she does not run for fitness. Jenny runs for her soul, not her body. It is the fitness of her spirit that sets the tone of her days changes their timber from strained to effortless. I run for perspective, says Jenny. When the client picks at her copy, Jenny detaches and soars above her frustration like the great blue heron. It is not that she doesn't care. 
it is that she has a new perspective m-a bird's eye view m-on the place of her tribulations in the universe. To keep the body in good health is a duty. Otherwise we shall not be able to keep our mind strong and clear. Buddha. Eve Gazbitz is a novelist m-and a swimmer. Tall, blonde, and as generously perked as the freeway cloverleaf of her native Los Angeles, Gazbitz swims in order to direct the traffic flow of her own overcrowded mind. Swimming, she says, is a wonderful sport for a writer. Every day, as she swims the aquamarine oblong of her neighborhood pool, her mind dives deep into itself, past the weeds and clutter of its everyday concerns m one editor is late with a check, why the typist persists in making so many errors M-and down to a quiet green pool of inspiration. That rhythmic, repetitive action transfers the locus of the brain's energies from the logic to the artist hemisphere. It is there that inspiration bubbles up and trammeled by the constraints of logic. Martha is a carpenter and a long-distance bicyclist. Carpentry challenges her daily to find innovative solutions to construction problems, to untangle the intricacies of a complicated design situation requiring a simple answer to a complicated question. How can I build in workspace without using floor space, when I'm done working, or is there some kind of cabinet that could fit in this corner and around on this wall without seeming too modern for my furniture? Pedaling from her home in the suburbs to her job in the city, Martha encounters her answers to these questions. In much the same way that a red-winged blackbird will suddenly take flight and cross her line of vision, Martha will be pedaling when louver doors will flash as a design solution. Pumping her bicycle rhythmically and repetitively, Martha also pumps the well of her creativity. It is my time to let my imagination roam and work out problems, Martha says. Solutions just come. Somehow I am freed to free associate, and things begin to fall into place. The things that begin to fall into place are not merely work associated. When she bicycles, Martha has a sense not only of her own motion but also of the motion of God through the universe. She remembers riding alone on Route 22 in upstate New York. The sky was an azure bowl. The cornfields were green and gold. The ribbon of black asphalt that Martha rode seemed to her to head straight into the heart of God. Silence, a blue sky, a black ribbon of highway, God, and the wind. When I ride, especially at dusk and at early morning, I feel God. I am able to meditate more in motion than sitting still. Being alone, having the freedom to go, wherever I want, having the wind blow, riding alone in that wind, allows me to center myself I feel God so closely that my spirit sings. Here in this body are the sacred rivers, here are the sun and moon as well as all the pilgrimage places. I have not encountered another temple as blissful as my own body. Sarah. Exercise teaches the rewards of process. It teaches the sense of satisfaction over small tasks well done. Jenny, running, extends herself and learns to tap into an unexpected inner resource. Martha would call that power God, but whatever it answers to, exercise seems to call it forth in other circumstances, when we mistrust our personal strength. Rather than scotch a creative project, when it frustrates us, we learn to move through the difficulty. Life is a series of hurdles, says Libby, a painter whose sport is horseback riding. I used to see it as a series of obstacles or roadblocks. Now they are hurdles and challenges. How well am I taking them? In the daily schooling of her horse, teaching her to think, before she jumps, to pace herself properly, Libby has learned the same skills for her own life. 
Part of this learned creative patience has to do with connecting to a sense of universal creativity. Writing, my rational mind switches off, she says. I am reduced to feeling, to being a participant. When you ride through a field of grass and little flecks of fluff from the wheat ears float around you, the feeling makes your heart sing. When a rooster tail of snow sparkles in the sun in your wake, that makes your heart sing. These moments of intense feeling have taught me to be aware of other moments in my life, as they occur. When I feel that singing feeling with a man and know that I have also felt it in a field of grass and a field of snow, then I know that is really my own capacity to feel that I am celebrating. It is not only the sense of a communion with nature that creates a singing in the heart. An endorphin-induced natural high is one of the byproducts of exercise itself. A runner may feel the same celebratory sense of well-being pounding a dirty city street that Libby finds, as she posts rhythmically along a country trail. God is in his heaven, all's right with the world is, how Robert Browning characterized this feeling in his long narrative poem Pippa Passes. It is no coincidence that Pippa experienced this feeling, as she was walking. Not everyone can afford to ride a horse or even a 10-speed bicycle. Many of us must rely on our feet for transportation and for recreation. Like Jenny, we can take up running. Or we might make walking our sport. As an artist, walking offers the added benefit of sensory saturation. Things do not whiz by. We really see them. In a sense, insight follows from sight. We feel the well and later tap it more easily. Jerry is a confirmed city dweller. His country walks are limited to perusing window boxes and pocket gardens. Jerry has learned that in cities, people are the scenery. He has also learned to look up, not down, and to admire the frippery and phrases that often grace buildings that look quite, well, pedestrian at street level. As he roves the city canyons, Jerry has found a whole panoply of scenic attractions. There is the orange marmalade cat that sits in the window above the window box with both pink and red geraniums. There is the copper church roof gone murky green that glistens silver in rainstorms. An ornately inlaid marble foyer can be glimpsed through the doors of one Midtown office building. On another block, someone has sunk a lucky horseshoe in civic concrete. A miniature statue of liberty soars unexpectedly atop a dignified brick facade. Jerry feels at liberty himself, roaming the city streets on tireless feet. This courtyard, that cobbled walkway M. Jerry gathers urban visual delights the same way his primordial ancestors gathered this nut, that berry. They gathered food. He gathers food for thought. Exercise, much maligned as mindless activity among certain intellectuals, turns out to be thought provoking instead. As we said before, we learn by going where we have to go. Exercise is often the going that moves us from stagnation to inspiration, from problem to Solution, from self-pity to self-respect. We do learn by going. We learn we are stronger than we thought. We learn to look at things with a new perspective. We learn to solve our problems by tapping our own inner resources and listening for inspiration, not only from others but from ourselves. Seemingly without effort, our answers come while we swim or stride or ride or run. By definition, this is one of the fruits of exercise, exercise, the act of bringing into play or realizing in action, Webster's Ninth. God bless the roots. Body and soul are one. Theodore Rothk. Building your artist's altar. Morning pages are meditation, a practice that bring you to your creativity and your creator God.
In order to stay easily and happily creative, we need to stay spiritually centered. This is easier to do if we allow ourselves centering rituals. It is important that we devise these ourselves from the elements that feel holy and happy to us. Many blocked creatives grew up in punitively religious homes. For us to stay happily and easily creative, we need to heal from this, becoming spiritually centered through creative rituals of our own. A spiritual room or even a spiritual corner is an excellent way to do this. This haven can be a corner of a room, a nook under the stairs, even a window ledge. It is a reminder and an acknowledgement of the fact that our creator unfolds our creativity. Fill it with things that make you happy. Remember that your artist is fed by images. We need to unlearn our old notion that spirituality and sensuality don't mix. An artist's altar should be a sensory experience. We are meant to celebrate the good things of this earth. Pretty leaves, rocks, candles, sea treasures m-all these remind us of our creator. Small rituals, self-devised, are good for the soul. Burning incense, while reading affirmations or writing them, lighting a candle, dancing to drum. Music, holding a smooth rock and listening to Gregorian chant m-all of these tactile, physical techniques reinforce spiritual growth. Remember, the artist child speaks the language of the soul, music, dance, scent, shells. Your artist's altar to the creator should be fun to look at, even silly. Remember how much little kids like Gaudi suff. Your artist is a little kid, so. Art does not reproduce the visible, rather, it makes it visible. The moon develops creativity, as chemicals develop photographic images. Norma Jean Harris. Tasks. 1. Tape your own voice reading the basic principles. See page 3. Choose a favorite essay from this book and tape that as well. Use this tape for meditation. 2. Write out, in longhand, your artist's prayer from week 4. Place it in your wallet. 3. Buy yourself a special creativity notebook. Number pages 1 through 7. Give one page each to the following categories, health, possessions, leisure, relationships, creativity, career, and spirituality. With no thought as to practicality, list 10 wishes in each area. All right, it's a lot. Let yourself dream a little here. 4. Working with the honest changes section in week 4, inventory for yourself the ways you have changed since beginning your recovery. 5. List 5 ways you will change as you continue. 6. List 5 ways you plan to nurture yourself in the next 6 months, courses you will take, supplies you will allow yourself, artists' dates, and vacations just for you. 7. Take out a piece of paper and plan one week's nurturing for yourself. This means one concrete, loving action every single day for one week, please binge. 8. Write and mail an encouraging letter to your inner artist. This sounds silly and feels very, very good to receive. Remember that your artist is a child and loves praise and encouragement and festive plans. 9. Once more, re-examine your God concept. Does your belief system limit or support your creative expansion? Are you open-minded about altering your concept of God? 10. List 10 examples of personal synchronicity that support the possibility of a nurturing creative force. Check in. 1. How many days this week did you do your morning pages? How was the experience for you? Have you recommended morning pages to anyone else? Why? 2. Did you do your artist date this week? Have you considered scheduling an entire artist's day? Woo. What did you do? 
How did it feel? 3. Did you experience any synchronicity this week? What was it? 4. Were there any other issues this week that you consider significant for your recovery? Describe them. Week 12. Recovering a sense of faith. I end this final week, we acknowledge the inherently mysterious spiritual heart of creativity. We address the fact that creativity requires receptivity and profound trust m-capacities we have developed through our work in this course. We set our creative aims and take a special look at last-minute sabotage. We renew our commitment to the use of the tools. Trusting. Adventures don't begin until you get into the forest. That first step in an act of faith. Mickey Hart Grateful Dead Drummer. Creativity requires faith. Faith requires that we relinquish control. This is frightening, and we resist it. Our resistance to our creativity is a form of self-destruction. We throw up roadblocks on our own path. Why do we do this? In order to maintain an illusion of control. Depression, like anger and anxiety, is resistance, and it creates disease. This manifests itself as sluggishness, confusion, I don't know, the truth is, we do know and we know, that we know. Each of us has an inner dream that we can unfold, if we will just have the courage to admit what it is. And the faith to trust our own admission. The admitting is often very difficult. A clearing affirmation can often open the channel. One excellent one is I know the things I know. Another is I trust. My own inner guide. Either of these will eventually yield us a sense of our own direction m-which we will often then promptly resist. Do not fear mistakes m-there are none. Miles Davis. This resistance is really very understandable. We are not accustomed to thinking that God's will for us and our own inner dreams can coincide. Instead, we have bought the message of our culture, this world is a veil of tears and we are meant to be dutiful and then die. The truth is that we are meant to be bountiful and live. The universe will always support affirmative action. Our truest dream for ourselves is always God's will for us. Mickey Hart's hero and mentor, the late, great mythologist Joseph Campbell, wrote, Follow your bliss and doors will open where there were no doors before. It is the inner commitment to be true to ourselves and follow our dreams that triggers the support of the universe. While we are ambivalent, the universe will seem to us also to be ambivalent and erratic. The flow through our lives will be characterized by spurts of abundance and long spells of drought, when our supply dwindles to a mere trickle. If we look back at the times, when the world seemed to be a capricious and untrustworthy place, we see that we were ourselves ambivalent and conflicted in our goals and behaviors. Once we trigger an internal yes by affirming our truest goals and desires, the universe mirrors that yes and expands it. There is a path for each of us. When we are on our right path, we have a zero-effectedness. We know the next right action m-dash, although not necessarily what is just around the bend. By trusting, we learn to trust. Mystery. Creativity m-dash like human life itself m-dash begins in darkness. We need to acknowledge this. All too often, we think only in terms of light, and then. The light bulb went on and I got it. It is true that insights may come to us, as flashes. It is true that some of these flashes may be blinding. It is, however, also true that such bright ideas are preceded by a gestation period that is interior, murky, and completely necessary. We speak often about ideas as brain children. What we do not realize is that brain children, like all babies, should not be dragged from the creative womb prematurely.
ideas, like stalactites and stalagmites, form in the dark inner cave of consciousness. They form in drips and drops, not by squared off building blocks. We must learn to wait for an idea to hatch. Or, to use a gardening image, we must learn to not pull our ideas up by the roots to see if they are growing. Dwelling on the page is an artless art form. It is fooling around. It is doodling. It is the way that ideas slowly take shape and form until they are ready to help us see the light. All too often, we try to push, pull, outline, and control our ideas instead of letting them grow organically. The creative process is a process of surrender, not control. The most beautiful thing we can experience is the mysterious. Albert Einstein. What shakes the eye but the invisible? Theodore Roth. Mystery is at the heart of creativity. That, and surprise. All too often, when we say we want to be creative, we mean that we want to be able to be productive. Now, to be creative is to be productive and dash but by cooperating with the creative process, not forcing it. As creative channels, we need to trust the darkness. We need to learn to gently mull instead of churning away like a little engine on a straight-ahead path. This mulling on the page can be very threatening. I'll never get any real ideas this way, we fret. Hatching an idea is a lot like baking bread. An idea needs to rise. If you poke at it too much at the beginning, if you keep checking on it, it will never rise. A loaf of bread or a cake, baking, must stay for a good long time in the darkness and safety of the oven. Open that oven too soon and the bread collapses and dash or the cake gets a hole in its middle, because all the steam has rushed out of it. Creativity requires a respectful reticence. The truth is that this is how to raise the best ideas. Let them grow in dark and mystery. Let them form on the roof of our consciousness. Let them hit the page in droplets. Trusting this slow and seemingly random drip, we will be startled one day by the flash of oh. That's it. The imagination at play. When we think about creativity, it is all too easy to think art with a capital A. For our purposes, capital art is a scarlet letter, branding us as doomed. In order to nurture our creativity, we require a sense of festivity, even humor, art. That's somebody my sister used to date. We are an ambitious society, and it is often difficult for us to cultivate forms of creativity that do not directly serve us and our career goals. Recovery urges our re-examining definitions of creativity and expanding them to include what in the past we called hobbies. The experience of creative living argues that hobbies are in fact essential to the joyful life. Then, too, there is the hidden benefit that they are also creatively useful. Many hobbies involve a form of artist brain bullying that leads to enormous creative breakthroughs. When I have screenwriting students stuck at the midpoint of Act 2, I ask them to please go do their household mending. They usually balk, offended by such a mundane task, but sewing has a nice way of mending up plots. Gardening is another hobby I often assign to creativity students. When someone is panicked halfway across the bridge into a new life, repotting plants into larger and better containers quite literally grounds that person and gives him or her a sense of expansion. Spiritual benefits accompany the practice of a hobby. There is a release into humility that comes from doing something by rote. As we serve our hobby, we are freed from our ego's demands and allowed the experience of merging with a greater source. This conscious contact frequently affords us the perspectives needed to solve vexing personal or creative conundrums.
It is a paradox of creative recovery that we must get serious about taking ourselves lightly. We must work at learning to play. Creativity must be freed from the narrow parameters of capital aired and recognized, as having much broader play, that word again. As we work with our morning pages and artist dates, many forgotten samplings of our own creativity may come to mind. Bullet I had forgotten all about those paintings I did in high school. I loved painting those flats in drama tech. Bullet I suddenly remembered I played Antigone and Dash who could forget her. I don't know if I was any good, but I remember I loved it. Bullet I'd forgotten all about the skits I wrote when I was 10. I set them all to Revels Bolero no matter what they were about. I made my brothers and sisters swoon about the living room. Bullet I used to tap dance. I know you can't believe it now, but I was something. As we write, digging ourselves out of denial, our memories, dreams, and creative plans all move to the surface. We discover anew that we are creative beings. The impulse cooks in us all, simmering along all the time and dash without our knowledge, without our encouragement, even without our approval. It moves beneath the surface of our lives, showing in bright flashes, like a penny, in our stream of thought and dash like new grass under snow. For me a painting is like a story which stimulates the imagination and draws the mind into a place filled with expectation, excitement, wonder and pleasure. J.P. Huston Painter. We are intended to create. We refurbish a dowdy kitchen, tie bows on a holiday cat, experiment with a better soup. The same child who brewed perfume from a dab of this and a dash of that, half dish soap and part cinnamon, grows up to buy pot pori and to boil a spice pot that says, Christmas. As gray, as controlled, as dreamless as we may strive to be, the fire of our dreams will not stay buried. The embers are always there, stirring in our frozen souls like winter leaves. They won't go away. They are sneaky. We make a crazy doodle in a boring meeting. We post a silly card on our office board. We nickname the boss something wicked. Plant twice, as many flowers, as we need. Restive in our lives, we yearn for more, we wish, we chafe. We sing in the car, slam down the phone, make lists, clear closets, sort through shelves. We want to do something but we think it needs to be the right something, by which we mean something important. We are what's important, and the something that we do can be something festive but small, dead plants go, mismatched socks bite the dust. We are stung by loss, bitten by hope. Working with our morning pages, a new M-dash and gaudy. M-dash life takes form. Who bought that azalea? Why the sudden taste for pink? Is this picture you've tacked up or you you're going toward? Play is the exultation of the possible. Martin Buber. Your shoes feel worn. You throw them out. There's a garage sale coming and you are playing host. You buy first edition, splurge on new sheets. A friend worries once too often about what's come over you and you take your first vacation in years. The clock is ticking and you're hearing the beat. You stop by a museum shop, sign your name on a scuba diving sheet, and commit yourself to Saturday mornings in the deep end. You're either losing your mind dash or gaining your soul. Life is meant to be an artist date. That's why we were created. Escape Velocity. My friend Michelle has a theory, a theory born of long and entangled romantic experience. In a nutshell, it goes, when you're going to leave them, they know. This same theory applies to creative recovery. It occurs, when you reach what Michelle calls Escape Velocity. 
as she puts it, there's this time for blastoff, like a NASA space launch, and you're heading for it when when, you draw to you the test. The test? Yeah. The test. It's like, when you're all set to marry the nice guy, the one who treats you right, and Mr. Poison gets wind of it and phones you up. Uh. The whole trick is to evade the test. We all draw to us the one test that's our total nemesis. A lawyer by trade and a writer by avocation and temperament, Michelle is fond of conspiracy theories, which she lays out in sinister detail. Think of it. You're all set to go to the coast on an important business trip, and your husband suddenly needs you, capital N, for no real reason. You're all set to leave the bad job, and the boss from hell suddenly gives you your first raise in five years. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. Listening to Michelle talk, it was clear that her years as a trial attorney stood her in good stead as a creative person. She, at least, was no longer fooled. But is it really so sinister, as she implied? Do we really draw to us a test? I thought about everything Michelle had told me and I concluded that the answer was yes. One does not discover new lands without consenting to lose sight of the shore for a very long time. Andre Gide. I thought of all the times I'd been fooled. There was the agent who managed to undo Don deals but apologized so prettily. There was the editor who asked for rewrite upon rewrite until Gruel was all that remained, but who always said I wrote brilliantly and was her brightest star. A little flattery can go a long way toward deterring our escape velocity. So, can a little cash. More sinister than either is the impact a well-placed doubt can have, particularly for your own good, just wanting to make sure you've thought about this doubt and dash voiced by one of our nearest and dearest. As recovering creatives, many of us find that every time our career heats up we reach for our nearest wet blanket. We blurt out our enthusiasm to our most skeptical friend M-in fact, we call him up. If we don't, he calls us. This is the test. Our artist is a child, an inner youngster, and when he slash she is scared, money is what's called for. Unfortunately, many of us have wet blanket mummies and a whole army of wet blanket surrogate mummies and dash those friends who have our second, third, and fourth thoughts for us. The trick is not to let them be that way. How? Zip the lip. Button up. Keep a lid on it. Don't give away the gold. Always remember, the first rule of magic is self-containment. You must hold your intention within yourself, stoking it with power. Only then will you be able to manifest what you desire. In order to achieve escape velocity, we must learn to keep our own counsel, to move silently among doubters, to voice our plans only among our allies, and to name our allies accurately. Make a list, those friends who will support me. Make another list, those friends who won't. Name your WB quote S for what they are M dash wet blankets. Wrap yourself in something else M dash dry ones. Fluffy heated towels. Do not indulge or tolerate anyone who throws cold water in your direction. Forget good intentions. Forget they didn't mean it. Remember to count your blessings and your toes. Escape velocity requires the sword of steely intention and the shield of self-determination. They will try to get you. Don't forget that, warns Michelle. Set your goals and set your boundaries. I would add, set your sights and don't let the ogre that looms on the horizon deflect your flight. Tasks. 1. Write down any resistance, angers, and fears you have about going on. From here. We all have them. 2. Take a look at your current areas of procrastination. 
What are the payoffs in your waiting? Locate the hidden fears. Do a list on paper. 3. Sneak a peek at week 1, core negative beliefs. See page 30. Laugh. Yes, the nasty critters are still there. Note your progress. Read yourself the affirmations on pages 36 and 37. Write some affirmations about your continued creativity as you end the course. 4. Mend any mending. 5. Repot any pinched and languishing plants. 6. Select a god jar. A what? A jar, a box, a vase, a container. Something to put your fears, your resentments, your hopes, your dreams, your worries into. 7. Use your god jar. Start with your fear list from task I above. When worried, remind yourself it's in the jar and dash God's got it. Then take the next action. 8. Now, check how, H. Honestly, what would you most like to create? Open-minded, what oddball paths would you dare to try? W. Illing, what appearances are you willing to shed to pursue your dream? 9. List 5 people you can talk to about your dreams and with whom you feel supported to dream and then plan. 10. Reread this book. Share it with a friend. Remember, that the miracle is one artist sharing with another. Trust God. Trust yourself good luck and God bless you. Check in. 1. How many days this week did you do your morning pages? Have you accepted them yet, as a permanent spiritual practice? How was the experience, for you? 2. Did you do your artist date this week? Will you allow yourself these on a permanent basis as well? What did you do? How did it feel? 3. Did you experience any synchronicity this week? What was it? 4. Were there any other issues this week that you consider significant, for your recovery? Describe them. As a recovering creative, you now have put many hours into your recovery over these three months, changing rapidly, as you grew. For your recovery to continue, you require a commitment to further creative plans. The contract on the following page will help you accomplish them. Creativity Contract My name is underscore 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 underscore. I am a recovering creative person. To further my growth and my joy, I now commit myself to the following self-nurturing. Plans, morning pages have been an important part of my self-nurturing and self-discovery. I, underscore 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 underscore, hereby commit myself to continuing to work with them for the next 90 days. Artists' dates have been integral to my growth in self-love and my deepening joy in living. I, underscore 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 underscore, am willing to commit to another 90 days of weekly artists' dates for self-care. In the course of following the artist's way and healing my artist within, I have discovered that I have a number of creative interests. While I hope to develop many of them, my specific commitment for the next 90 days is to allow myself to more fully explore. My concrete commitment to a plan of action is a critical part of nurturing my artist. For the next 90 days, my planned, self-nurturing creative action plan is. I have chosen underscore 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 as my creative colleague and underscore 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 as my creative backup. I am committed to a weekly phone check-in. I have made the above commitments and will begin my new commitment on. Epilogue. The Artist's Way. In ending this book, I yearned for a final flourish, some last fill-up of the imagination that would sign the book. 
this was a small and harmless conceit, I felt M- until I remembered the number of times I have enjoyed a painting and been distracted by the outsized artistic signature of its maker. So, no final flourishes here. The truth is that this book should probably end with an image from another book. As I recall it, and this may be my imagination and not my memory at work, an early edition of Thomas Merton's Seven Story Mountain featured a mountain on its book jacket M the Seven Story Mountain, no doubt. Maybe it did and maybe it didn't. I read the book many years ago, a precocious 12 year old. What I conjure now is a mountain of Himalayan proportions with a path winding upward to its height. That path, a spiral path, is how I think of the artist's way. As we pursue climbing it, we circle back on the same views, over and over, at slightly different altitudes. I've been here before, we think, getting a spell of drought. And, in a sense, we have been. The road is never straight. Growth is a spiral process, doubling back on itself, reassessing and regrouping. As artists, our progress is often dogged by rough terrain or storms. A thought may obscure the distance we have covered or the progress we have made toward our goal. While the occasional dazzling vista may grace us, it is really best to proceed a step at a time, focusing on the path beneath our feet as much as the heights still before us. The artist's way is a spiritual journey, a pilgrimage home to the self like all great journeys it entails dangers of the trail, some of which I have tried to enumerate in this book. Like all pilgrims, those of us on the artist's way will often be graced by fellow travelers and invisible companions. What I call my marching orders others may sense in themselves, as a still, small voice or, even more simply, a hunch. The point is that you will hear something, if you listen for it. Keep your soul cocked for guidance. I finally discovered the source of all movement, the unity from which all diversities of movement are born. Isadora Duncan. Creation is only the projection into form of that which already exists. Srimad Bhagavatam. A painting is never finished M-it simply stops in interesting places. Paul Gardner. When Mark Bryan began cornering me into writing this book, he had just seen a Chinese film about Tibet called The Horse Thief. It was an indelible film for him, a classic of the Beijing school, a film we have since searched for in Chinese video stores and film archives, to no avail. Mark told me about the film's central image, another mountain, a prayerful journey up that mountain, on bended knee, step, lie prostrate, stand and straighten, another step, lie prostrate. In the film, this journey was the reparation that a thief and his wife had to make for damaging their society by dishonoring themselves through thievery. I have wondered, since then, if the mountain that I see when thinking of the artist's way isn't another mountain best climbed in the spirit of reparation m-not to others, but to ourselves. Words for it. I wish I could take language and fold it like cool, moist rags. I would lay words on your forehead. I would wrap words on your wrists. There, there, my words would say m-dash. Or something better. I would ask them to murmur, hush and s-h-h-s-h-h-h, it's all right. I would ask them to hold you all night. I wish I could take language and dog and soothe and cool where fever blisters and burns, where fever turns yourself against I I wish I could take language and heal the words that were the wounds you have known a mess for. J.C. The artist's way questions and answers. Introduction. Although creative recovery is a highly individual process, there are certain recurrent themes and questions that we have encountered over and over in our teaching. 
In the hopes of answering at least some of your questions directly, we include the most commonly asked questions and answers here. Questions and answers. Q. Is true creativity the possession of a relatively small percentage of the population? A. No, absolutely not. We are all creative. Creativity is a natural life force that all can experience in one form or another. Just as blood is part of our physical body and is nothing we must invent, creativity is part of us and we each can tap into the greater creative energies of the universe and pull from that vast, powerful spiritual wellspring to amplify our own individual creativity. As a culture, we tend to define creativity too narrowly and to think of it in elitist terms, as something belonging to a small chosen tribe of real artists. But in reality, everything we do requires making creative choices, although we seldom recognize that fact. The ways in which we dress set up our homes, do our jobs, the movies we see, and even the people we involve ourselves with m-these all are expressions of our creativity. It is our erroneous beliefs about creativity, our cultural mythology about artists, all artists are broke, crazy, promiscuous, self-centered, single, or they have trust funds that encourage us to leave our dreams unfulfilled. These myths most often involve matters of money, time, and other people's agendas for us. As we clear these blocks away, we can become more creative. Q. Can I expect dramatic results to begin occurring right away? A. The answer is both yes and no. While dramatic changes will occur within the 12-week course, much more dramatic changes occur when artists' way tools become life tools. The shift over a two- to three-year period can feel like a downright miracle. Blocked filmmakers who make one short film, then a second and then a feature, blocked writers who began with essays, reviews, and articles moving into whole books and plays. If the basic tools of morning pages and the artist date are kept carefully in place, you can expect to experience large life shifts. Q. What factors keep people from being creative? A. Conditioning. Family, friends, and educators may discourage us from pursuing an artist's career. There is the mythology that artists are somehow different, and this mythology of difference inspires fear. If we have negative perceptions about what an artist is, we will feel less inclined to do the diligent work necessary to become one. On a societal level, blocked creative energy manifests itself as self-destructive behavior. Many people who are engaged in self-defeating behaviors, such as addicts of alcohol, drugs, sex, or work, are really in the hands of this shadow side of the creative force. As we become more creative, these negative expressions of the creative force often abate. Q. How does this book free people to be more creative? A. The primary purpose and effect of the artist's way is to put people in touch with the power of their own internal creativity. The book frees people to be more creative in many different ways. First, it helps dismantle negative mythologies about artists. Second, it helps people discover their own creative force, access it, and express it more freely. Third, it provides people with an awareness about their self-destructive behaviors and allows them to see more clearly what the impediments on their individual path might be. Finally, the book helps people identify and celebrate their desires and dreams and make the plans to accomplish them. It teaches people how to support and nurture themselves as well as how to find others who will support them in fulfilling their dreams. Q. One of the central themes of the artist's way is the link between creativity and spirituality. How are they connected? 
A. Creativity is a spiritual force. The force that drives the green fuse through the flower, as Dylan Thomas defined his idea of the life force, is the same. Urge that drives us toward creation. There is a central will to create that is part of our human heritage and potential. Because creation is always an act of faith, and faith is a spiritual issue, so is creativity. As we strive for our highest selves, our spiritual selves, we cannot help but be more aware, more proactive, and more creative. Q. Tell me about the two central exercises in the book M-The Morning Pages and the Artist Dates. A. The Morning Pages are three pages of stream of consciousness longhand morning writing. You should think of them not as art but as an active form of meditation for Westerners. (laughs) 